Last week, we opened our study in the book of James. We said it was a very practical New Testament letter. It is a letter. Sometimes we call it the book of James or the epistle, which means letter. And tonight, the title of our message is God's Offer of Help in Our Trials. Very practical stuff, how God helps us in our trials, our pains, and our difficulties. Sometimes I think Christians make the mistake of taking this well-known portion of the Word of God, and, and let's look at verse 2, James 1, 2. My brethren, we covered verse 1 last week, my brethren, counted all joy when you fall into various trials. Sometimes I think people look at this, and then not when it's happening to them, but they'll say to other people who are in a trial, you know, uh, the Scripture says you need to be glad about this. You need, to, you need to count it all joy. Sometimes I wonder when people say stuff like that. I'm like, are they heartless? Are they clueless? Are they, are they really not thinking? Or perhaps maybe that's just an easy way um, out of something, out of a situation, when deep down you know it's a tough one. You don't really know what to say, and you have to say, well, you know, the Lord tells us to count it all joy when you fall into various trials. I'm not sure that James tonight is going to, he's going to jump off of verse 2. I'm not sure that he's teaching us that this is the ideal verse for in-the-moment counseling. When someone's standing in front of you, and they're crying, and they're upset, and they're grieving, and there's a lot of pain... I think rather what he's teaching us tonight is a view of how God works, about one of the ways that God works in our lives to bring us to the point of what we're going to talk about tonight, of perfection and or maturity. So, so what's he doing? What, what, what's God doing? God is teaching us, going to teach us, to live out our faith when our faith is tested. And if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're not, we're so glad that you're with us here tonight. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you can know for sure that your faith is going to be tested quite regularly. You see, it's not just hardship. It's just not just heartache. It's just not difficulty. It's just not the little annoyances of life. It can also be tested in prosperity, it can be tested in success as well. And while it's tempting and true to say, and a lot of people will say this in a passage like this, we can grow stronger through trial and difficulty. I believe that with all of my heart. I actually think there's a lot more going on here. I think there's a lot of other stuff we need to consider. James wants us to know that God brings or allows, you could sit and argue about that one all night, uh, these situations into our lives because he has a purpose in these situations. James wants us to, to help us in how to see the world so that we see it in such a way that continuing in faith is a result and a maturity in faith or maturing in faith is a result. And God uses trials to do this. He also uses trials to reveal our hearts. 
He also, I believe with all of my heart, teaches us through trials to take personal responsibility, to admit personal responsibility in things. You see, by taking personal responsibility in trials, and then by, after we take personal responsibility, by responding properly, faith and maturity begin to develop. They are an outgrowth of this. So in chapter one, which, you know, when we're studying chapter one, after a while, you kind of be like, are we ever going to get to chapter two? Chapter one is probably one third of the messages in in James. There's just a lot in chapter one. And James is forming what I would call a view of life. He's teaching us how to see life And he wants to help us see the ups and downs of life correctly, big and small. Now, here's an important thing. We're talking about trials. James does not offer answers for accidental or undeserved suffering. He does not offer answers for why God's people, the righteous, suffer? Those are some of the toughest questions that we, you and I will ever have to answer, and I think the more um, casual and cavalier we are about it, the, the, the worse we serve people. Perhaps one, we do at some point in time want to get to the fact that Jesus died on the cross, so we might not have the correct answer for it, but we know he understands such tremendous suffering. Yet James sees our suffering as something that is under the sovereign hand of God who loves us and wants the best for us, which is, it sounds unusual, I know. Like, are you saying that that there's a loving God behind some of our suffering? I don't think that I'm saying it. I think that the scripture is saying it. So let's jump in, but let's go back to verse 1. We'll read it real quick to set the scene from last week. James 1, 1 and 2. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes, we said last week that was Jewish Christians, which are scattered abroad, greetings. That was our text from last week. Verse 2, we just read it. My brethren, some versions say brothers and sisters, the idea is my fellow Christians, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Some versions say when you fall into all kinds of trials or many trials. So notice how quickly James jumped in. And by jumping in this quickly, it may be a clue that the trials of these scattered people, we said last week they could be people that had been in Jerusalem, which was under crushing poverty and persecution, they were perhaps in James's church, James, the brother of Jesus. They were a leader in the Jerusalem church. Perhaps they were in his church, and then that they've scattered out. And this is the reason why he is writing to them, because of these trials. Now, let's be totally honest for a second. I know some of you are you're very spiritual. You watch Wednesday night Bible studies, and so I guess you figure you're going to get some extra points for something like that. But let's, uh, let's let our hair down, if you will. Let's let our you know, let's let it all hang out, as they used to say. Um, When we face trials, whether they are outward difficulties or inward temptations, 
I'm pretty sure joy is not our first response. I'm pretty sure we're not like, oh, goody, rejoice, this is great. Notice James calls them various trials, various kinds of trials. Literally, it means many colored trials, meaning they're going to take various forms, that God's going to use all of these different things in our life. Even when we'll say to ourselves, man, everything is falling apart. Nothing is going right. God's going to use all of this stuff. Now, it's important to note, and I think that, again, sometimes people take this to an extreme that James didn't mean, that all joy does not mean that joy is the only emotion you can experience in trials. So, so don't be walking up to people who just suffered tragic loss who are crying and saying to them, you know, oh, count that all joy, this is great. James is not saying that a response other than joy is sinful. It's okay to be sad. The scripture tells us that we weep with those who weep, we rejoice with those who rejoice. It's actually okay to be angry. The scripture says, Ephesians 4.26, be angry. That's a command. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath or your anger. Now, does that mean like, oh no, if I'm going to get angry, I better make sure it's in the morning so I got all day to seethe with anger before the sun goes down. Is he talking about the movement of the solar system or planets or something like that? I think not. I think what, what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, is he's saying, don't let it rule your life. And by the same token, God wants to help us so trials do not rule our lives. So what were the trials they had fallen into. Well, we get clues along the way, and, and one we said earlier was in Jerusalem, still seems to be the same thing, was poverty. Yet, as we'll see, James is aware of much, many other things, of trials that we can fall into. We can, we can have sickness, we can have loneliness, we can be grieving, we can have heartache, we can have disappointment. And, and his response that he gives us of joy seems totally unnatural. Am I the only one who thinks that way? Can I get an amen from somebody out there who, who, who says that's really unnatural? But James is going to teach us that by pursuing deep trust in the Lord and being thankful for his presence and asking for wisdom that we can get to the place where we see the benefit of the trial we have been through. And joy may be as simple as saying, well, Lord, thank you for that. It seemed awful at the time, but now looking back, I understand and I'm thankful for why that was in my life. He says, count it all joy. Some of your versions say, consider it all joy. These are thoughts rather than emotions. So I think James is teaching us how to think not telling us how to feel. It's very difficult to get a rein, rein in your feelings, although thinking will really help. Think clearly. In other words, James is teaching us that it is important 
to make a mental judgment about our trials in relation to our faith. So we're thinking about what we're going through. We're making a mental judgment. We're thinking it through. And he wants us then to move ourselves into trusting the plans and the purposes of God. Now, why would he tell us to do that? Well, there's many reasons, but I think the bigger reasons are that we keep our eyes on Jesus. Our faith doesn't die out, but it actually grows. It doesn't stop, but it actually marches on in the power of God. So, so you say, okay, Pastor Jim, why in the world would someone rejoice in trials? I mean, you got to give me a reason. You just can't tell me to do it. I don't buy it. Well, verse 3 and 4, he says this. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, some of you might say, well, James is just crazy. That's why you have his name, Pastor Jim. You're crazy just like him. He's just crazy. But let me tell you, what he just said was actually a very common biblical, and let's call it apostolic, encouragement. Listen to the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Why? Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. How about the Apostle Peter? Peter said this, 1 Peter 1, uh, verse 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so here you have three Bible writers saying, God uses trials in your life. Let's go look at verses 2 through 4. J.B. Phillips, he, said, he wrote it this way. When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Realize that they come to test your faith and to produce in you the quality of endurance. But let the process go on until that endurance is fully developed, and you will find that you have become men of mature character with the right sort of independence." So let's go back to James, verse 3 and 4 again. He says this, knowing. Now, it could be that he taught them this before, and he's just reminding them again. Or maybe some of them had written to him, and he's answering the questions about what's going on. And they said something like this, we know that God is doing something in the trials that we're in. So it could be saying, knowing, or it could be because you know that the testing of your faith produces patience. Now, we're going to come back to that word in a second. Some of your versions say steadfastness. Some versions say perseverance. Some versions say endurance. Verse 4. So that's what the testing of our faith does. But let patience have its perfect work. Another version says Let's, let it have its full effect that you may be perfect, some versions say mature and complete, lacking nothing. So here James is clear that we can rejoice 
knowing God is at work in our trials, even when they are very difficult and they're very emotional. Now, rejoicing, don't always equate it with just happiness. We rejoice in the Lord always. So we could be very sad, very emotional, but we could be saying, and this is something that I find myself repeatedly coming back to, saying, Lord, I'm, I'm really not sure about this situation, or I, I, don't, I don't exactly know what to do in this situation, or I can't figure this situation out, or I don't know why this has happened, but I do know you're at work. And even more, I'll pray this, even more than me knowing exactly what to do, we'll talk about that in a second, I want the grace of faithfulness. I don't want to lose touch with you. So how is God at work? Well, he uses trials to refine and purify our faith. He uses trials to increase our faith. I don't think this is a test to see if you have faith, although it could be. But I think what he's talking about here is refining their faith. James is teaching us that in trials, in difficulty, the Lord wants us to cling to him and to his word. And in any situation that we find ourselves in, staying with him, and staying engaged with him in the trial. Staying close to him, totally engaged with him, not deferring to our own way of living. You see, the reason for that is if we don't stay engaged with him, this is very, very common, sorrow and pain can easily take us out of our faith. And if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, you know people who sorrow and pain took them out of their faith, took them out of living for Christ. They just, because, I'm not saying this to judge them, but apparently they were not as engaged or maybe people didn't come alongside them to help them stay engaged. It doesn't mean we don't have trouble. It doesn't mean we don't have doubts. We're going to be talking about this stuff but we are still trying our best to hold on tight to the Lord. So instead of moving forward in trials, many end up going backwards. Many endure for a while, but then they just say it was too hard, and they give up. But yet, notice James doesn't say this is easy. He's not like, yeah, 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 you got to you know, find joy in trials. He doesn't say it's easy at all. Even when it's hard and it's painful, he counts it all joy. How? He counts it in, as all joy in his heart, in his love for God, knowing he is loved by God, and knowing you're loved by God, and not constantly like he's walking around, like swatting you all the time, like you're like a fly and he's fly swatting you or something like that. Or some of you, I know you live with that low level of guilt all of the time. That's, it's hard to feel loved when, when you feel that way. And so 
And so what he's saying is he's, he's counting it all joy in his heart, but also his mind is focused. His mind is focused on God and, and that God loves him and, and is doing something that is going to ultimately, whether it's in this life or the next, help to make him more mature. The version we're using says that trials produce patience. Now, I, you know, words change meaning over time. Sometimes translations are not always the best of, of, from one language to another. And for us, patience normally means what? Putting up with other people, doesn't it? You're like, all right, God, give me the patience. You know, all the, all the moms go, don't pray for patience or God will test it with your little ones. And so, so that's, I think that's not what he's saying here. And I think in our thinking, perseverance is a better word. So we would say that, uh, that, that trials produce perseverance or the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And, and it's a word picture. And, and James is a master of word pictures, we said last week. And the word picture that he's using is of, of someone carrying a heavy load. I always like to think of the kids getting off the bus with, the, with their book bag and they're practically leaning back. It's weighed so much, weighing so much on them. And I'm thinking... My kids used to come home from school like that. Sidetrack, don't count this against my time. My kids used to come home from school with this heavy, heavy backpack. It looked like it weighed like 80 pounds. And I'm like, do you got a lot of homework? They go, no, I don't have any. <laughs> I'd be like, to my wife, get the teacher on the phone. Would you please? They're trying to kill these kids. What is our husband, a chiropractor or something like that? I mean, it's just it's crazy. But the, but the idea is not just carrying a heavy load. It's carrying one for a long time. And that's what perseverance does that the testing of our faith produces perseverance that can help us carry or shoulder a load for a long time so patience tends to be a passive word but the word that he's using here is an aggressive word it is it is standing strong in the face of a storm if you will it's a struggle it's a fight by faith against things that, and when we fight that way, it produces in us a spiritual stamina and longevity for a follower of Jesus Christ. Because life is full of this stuff. It's like, it's, it's not going to end. It's like when people tell me that, young people tell me they're so tired all the time, I always say, don't worry, I hear it ends when we die. When people are saying, I'm, I'm having a lot of stuff going wrong. You know, I, I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. But inside I'm going, it ends when we die. It just, it's just nonstop. Verse 4 takes it even further. He says that God has an end goal. What's the word? He uses perfection or some words use maturity. But it's interesting here. He says, but let at the beginning of verse 4. But let. What is he talking about there? I think he's telling us that you, have, you and I have some personal responsibility in this. It's not that we're just let go and let God. You know, that's not it at all. But let. We have some personal responsibility to endure and persevere. And by enduring and by persevering in faith, we allow the trials to do its faith and character-building work in our lives. So we're at work, persevering, enduring, and while we're at work doing that, 
God is at work building character and faith in us. And the language, the way it's written uh, in, the, in, in the Greek is really, it indicates an ongoing work that God is producing, continually producing a maturing work in a committed follower, an engaged follower, a connected and abiding follower of Jesus Christ. Now, nowhere in, in, in the word of God, okay, um, when he says perfection, does he mean perfection in this life? There are some people, there's some places that teach that. I would say they're cults, but because you, you're never going to reach perfection. But although we will not re, uh, reach perfection in this life, this doesn't mean we don't try. This doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. Now, if you're always trying to be perfect, good luck. Not going to happen, <laughs> right? I just freed a lot of people right there with that statement, <laughs> okay? It is not going to happen. Why don't you give up? Do your best. I'm not saying be a slacker. Um, you know, everybody, some people used to say, well, we have to do everything perfect because Jesus did everything perfect. I'm the guy in the back who raises their hand and go, well, we ain't Jesus, so what's the point, right? Do we try our best? Yes. Do we do all things as unto the Lord, as Colossians told us? Yes. Do we have a sense of excellence about what we do? Yes. So we, so we, do, we do try our best. We're called to strive for maturity and perfection aware of two things. One, it is impossible. And two, now you say, well, maturity is impossible. I, maturing, yes, to reach full maturity in this life, no. And the other thing is this, there is the grace of forgiveness. There is the grace of God when we fail that he forgives. And God knows whether we're trying our best or whether we're, or whether we're not. The New Testament clearly teaches God is developing moral and spiritual character in the people of God, and he's got a toolbox for that. And trials are one of the big tools in his toolbox. Well, what if you're still struggling? What if you're still sinning? What if you say, I, I, I can't get there. I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm, I'm crazy about this. Well, verse 5 to 8 are well known in the context. They are God's offer to help those in the midst of trials. That is, that's what we're talking about, correct? Let's look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom. Now, he's writing to people, and he's saying to them, Hey, guys, if you lack wisdom, wisdom regarding what? I would think the trials that they're going through. Let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally, some versions say generously, and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Another version says, it will be given to you. I like the personalization of that. It will be given to you. So here we see the scripture teaching us that wisdom is needed to persevere and endure trials. Now, that's something we normally don't think of. We normally think of, come on, buck up, get it together, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, get tough, 
You know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. You know, that's kind of, that's the way we think. And James comes along and says, well, you know, if you really want to persevere and you really want to endure, you need wisdom. Why? Because it is via perseverance and wisdom that God's work in us is achieved. That's how God does it. In other words, wisdom is needed as we meet the various trials of life. Simple question. You're like, I'm on board. It's great. How do I get wisdom? Simple answer, James says. We ask the Lord. That's how we get it. It's that simple. It might be fair to say then that the Lord sees one of our biggest needs in this life is a lack of wisdom. So what does he say? Here it is. You want it? Just ask me for it. Just ask me for it. You know, when you've got little kids, my grandson was over last week and He'd, he'd say he wants something. I'd say, say please. He'd go, peace, peace. Right? It's a, God's the same way. You want something, ask for it. I think it's important to see, as we talk about this, it's important to see God's goal or goals in the book of James. And I think a big goal of James is this, is that God's character would be reflected in his people. God is looking for a spiritual integrity in his people. See, the Lord wants us to be about his business, and he wants that to be reflected in our hearts and in our actions. Now, it's probably not what we think about when we think about this passage. We probably think that wisdom is about relief from the pain of my trial. So God, give me wisdom, give me the right doctor, give me the right job, give me the right spouse, give me that, that's what we need. But it may be more so that wisdom is a gift that God gives us to please him. That might sound radical, that God would actually give us a gift to please him, yet I was just reading, you know, in the scriptures that, the, that heaven rejoices over one sinner that repents, you know, than the 99 righteous. And so, and so God would give us a gift to help us to please him. That's because wisdom is not just about having knowledge. It's living out in faith what one believes and when we live out our faith in God, that is pleasing to him. I mean, when it comes to, when it comes to wisdom, God knows we need it. I mean, do you, maybe you don't feel this way. I do sometimes. Do you ever feel sometimes that life is this huge, monstrous, purposeless, confusing, difficult mess Sometimes I just feel that way. And even if, you, even if you see the Lord's purposes, you're like, oh, I know what God's doing here. That doesn't mean it makes it easy. You say, oh, you know, God is refining me. God is purifying me. That does not make it easy. That does not make it clear what to do. 
and God says, I'll help you, you just need to ask. The verb tense of, of the word ask is really that it's okay to ask continuously and, and, and that wisdom will be generously given. And he tells us here that, James tells us that wisdom will be given without hesitation. God's not going to be like, uh, uh, excuse me. <coughs> oh, I have to edit that out of this tape, out of the message, the tape. What year were you born, Jim? <laughs> so anyway, um, so, so, so God knows, right, the way, the way we, can, we can see life, so he'll give it to us without hesitation. It's not like you're going to come to God and, and he's gonna, you're going to go, God, I really need wisdom in this situation. And he's going to go, I don't know. Should I? Should I not? What, what, what should I do? Also, it says that the Lord won't find fault in us. Well, what does that mean? That means that we can come continually, he won't hesitate, he won't find fault, meaning he won't be angry that we need it. He's not going to be like, how many times do I have to tell you the same thing over and over again? Or, man, you keep getting yourself into the same mess all the time. Why? Love, yes. But also, he keeps giving it to us so we can move on to maturity and perfection. And we can't move on to maturity and perfection without his gift of wisdom. Now, I've been around long enough to know that we wish that all of a sudden from heaven, it would come flying down, would be a list. Step one, step two, step three, step four, step five. The guys in the sound booth are laughing right now. <laughs> That's just not the way it works. We don't get a step-by-step -step process. Remember studying on Sunday, Abraham, God's like, yeah, go to the land, I'll show you. That is not a step-by-step -step process. <laughs> Rather, we get how to live in our trials as we trust him. That's the wisdom we get. Jesus taught this as well, Matthew 7 and Luke 11. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Now, a lot of people think, oh, that means I can get a Mercedes and get a big house and stuff like that. That's not the kind of stuff God's really that interested in. It's okay if he gives it to us, but if he doesn't, he doesn't. John 14, 13, Jesus said, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Once again, we're not talking about perfection, perfection is where we are going, we are on our way there, but we're talking about character formation as we're moving towards eternity. Now, this goal is achievable. It's not achievable overnight, and just when you think you're doing pretty good, somebody lets you know you're not, that's okay. That's okay. That, that, that's part of life. It may hurt. Yeah, I get it. But he wants us to grow in integrity and in righteousness and in devotion to God in our daily living. Yet it is wisdom that helps us cope with trials and brings God's clarity to many of our situations. But even God's clarity does not 
always make it easy. Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there's another way for the forgiveness of sins and the newness of life for your people, let this cup, the cup of your wrath, pass, pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. So heaven was silent. So Jesus had what? He had clarity. But that does not mean what he was about to endure was going to be easy. God's wisdom is not the wisdom of the world. And this is where we have to really take a step back. The wisdom of the world offers a fake joy. And the wisdom of the world actually now in our day offers an explanation for pain that pulls many people from God. Well, if there was really a loving God, he, he would never allow such things. Sometimes it seems to me, and you probably have to think about this a little bit, that, that God's wisdom walks a fine line. It, it walks the fine line between complete pessimism and, and an optimism that avoids reality. In other words, God's wisdom puts us straight right in the middle of reality. So we're not like, oh no, this is, this is it, we're dead. Or we're not like, oh, everything's going to be fine. We're actually searching for God and his purposes in what he is doing in the situation. But there's a condition on asking for wisdom. Look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. Let's stop right there. Some of you are like, oh, you low-level guilt people right now, you're like going, oh, what? there we go. I wasted all this time. I doubt. God's never going to give me wisdom. So we do, have, we do get to ask God for wisdom, but we need to ask with the right attitude, believing in faith that he will deliver. So let's try to be clear, um, careful, graceful, and biblical here. Our faith, or lack thereof, may be the barrier to us getting wisdom. It may be. Maybe if you just never have any clarity on what's going on or what to do, maybe it's a faith issue. Now, now some of you might be say, oh, that hurt. But that could be life-saving for you. That could dramatically change your life. Just, just understanding that, that your faith could be a barrier or your lack of faith could be a barrier to receiving God's wisdom. To, to put it another way, God makes the answering of the wisdom prayer contingent on faith and not doubting. Or as he says, or it could be, we could say without doubting. Now, the idea of without doubting opens up a huge can of worms. It opens up a lot of issues. It makes us really ask certain questions of ourselves is, if I ask God for wisdom and I believe in faith what I think he's telling me, will I really trust him? Or will I go, eh, I don't know about that? Or, or do I want the wisdom for God's will or do I want the wisdom for my will? Again, that's not faith. It's also important to see that what he's doing here doesn't undo other parts of the Bible 
where God seems to allow us our, of our questioning him. Other parts of the Bible, the Bible writers are questioning God. Here, here, James is saying, well, get some clarity. It's okay to question God, but in your questioning, ask for wisdom, how to live, maybe to get the answer or maybe to live without the answer. I don't know about you, but I'm living so much of my life with unanswered questions. And, and I think we all go through those times or we live those times. Now, great care, great care is needed in our thinking of not doubting. You get this wrong, it can really damage your faith. You get this wrong, you can really damage other people's faith. So um, when he talks about not doubting, if you take the rest of the Bible together, and that's one thing you have to realize about the Bible, it is, it is one cohesive book that when things seem to be contradictory, we have to work very hard to, to, to put them together so it makes sense. I don't think, because we see it all over the Bible, I don't think when he talks about not doubting, I don't think he's referring to the wavering faith we sometimes have that's common in our pain and suffering. Many people have great pain and suffering and they are wavering in their faith. It seems more so to me in light of the totality of Scripture what he's talking about here is when he says, don't doubt or without doubting, let him ask in faith, ask God in faith without doubting, that we are not to have a very strong sense of doubting the character of God. So we may be wavering. We may be saying, God, I'm really struggling here, but I know you're my rock. I'm really struggling here, but I know you have the answer. I'm really struggling here, but I know you have the plan. I need wisdom. I know you. I love you. I know your character. That's faith. That's faith. That kind of living and thinking will typically lead you and I to a habitual lack of trust if we're not, if we're distrustful of the character of God, but if we trust in him, it will strengthen us. It will move us to perfection. It will move us to maturity. If we lack trust in him, that is a huge issue between a person and God. Let me, let me give you an example of, of I think, if you're saying, well, I think you're a little crazy here. Let me give you an example. Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is talking about Abraham. And, and he says this, Romans 4.20. He, Abraham, did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. This Sunday we are going to look at major meltdown number one for Abraham. It's not as bad as major meltdown number two, but it's pretty bad. So he has his moments of doubt. Yet notice what Paul says here. 
that he did not waver at the promise of God. Why? Overall, he was a man of faith. And after he comes through big blunder number two, there's no mention of his sin anymore. In the New Testament, they don't talk about his blunders because the grace of God sees Abraham as not as who he was, but who he became. God sees you as who you are becoming. Verse 6 again, But let him ask in faith without doubting. Let's continue. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. So James um, describes the result of an inconsistent faith. James describes the result of consistently doubting the character of God. He says, you're like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Did you notice how on a calm day, how the waves come in on the ocean? But you notice on a windy day, they seem like they're kind of all over the place. Now, notice he doesn't say it's like a tidal wave, not like something that would be extreme, extremely emotional thing. He's talking about the, in, in basic daily living, someone who is not anchored and the ups and downs of life are just tossing them everywhere, always in a crisis. Something is always a problem. It's a great word picture of the person who moves from faith to doubt because they're unable in the situation to trust the Lord. Now, most of us know this and have experienced this, that honest doubt can actually lead to faith. If you're actually honest with God about your doubts, it can actually, he can actually lead you to faith but waffling doubt. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. God can, God can't. God's good, God's not. God loves me, God doesn't. You know, he forgives me, he didn't. Waffling doubt often leads to an action. And, and such people often waffle between the allegiance to God that they have and letting circumstances or the wisdom of the world rule in their hearts. You know, they, 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 they come to church, they hear the word of God, they're out in the parking lot, they're thinking, oh God, thank you for speaking to me, I know what to do. An hour later, they're at a family dinner, and there's the wisdom of the world being passed around with all the, it's being passed around faster than the food's being passed around, and before you know it, you're bought into it. You're bought into it. Now, I say this in love, and I'm going to try to hit everybody in this. Those of us who tend to be more driven by emotions and impulses need to be very careful of letting circumstances set the tone for what we're doing. And we're going to see a real live example of this on Sunday in Abraham's life. Those of us who are indecisive 
constantly questioning ourselves in an unhealthy way. I'm not saying that self-reflection is not good. It's actually Self-reflection and self-awareness is a very good thing, a very healthy thing. But if you're just always indecisive about everything, you need to be careful here. Because if you're wavering back and forth, waffling between your allegiances to what you want, whether you want to obey God or be comfortable or obey God or please people, you have to be very careful. However, let's flip that coin over. Some of us are very decisive. Some of us live in the, in the area of, and this is definitely me, you live in the area of what they call uh, decision fatigue. You feel like just, it's just one decision after another. That's why I'm constantly saying to people, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Because I, I just, not because I just like, oh, I'm interested. I just, I'm like, I can't make up my mind anymore. Sometimes Pam will say, what do you want for dinner? I go, food? <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know. And, and, and people like that, we need to be careful of that. Because we can waffle. We can, we can make decisions too hastily. Verse 7 and 8 is very sobering for those who doubt the character of God. It says, For let not that man, some versions say person, suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? The person who doubts the character of God, why should that person not expect to receive anything from the Lord or wisdom? Verse 8, because he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, not some of his ways, all his ways. Here Jesus tells us the consequences for the doubter of verse 6. They're ineffective and their prayers won't be answered. Once again, this is a person who is inconsistent in their faith, not thinking, not speaking, not acting in faith. James says they are unstable, not just spiritually, though. Instability is not just a spiritual thing. Spiritual instability will carry over into so many other areas of life. And he wants us to be aware of this. Why? Because such a person's soul is divided. Double-minded is the word he's used. Their mind is split. It's, it's in two different places. It's in God's world and it's in man's world. Jesus said this, you and I, we cannot serve two masters. But some people will try to. We all try to at some point in time. Hopefully the older we get, the more mature we get, the more we realize that we can't, we can't do that. And here's where we have to be careful. It's very subtle. It's very, very subtle. Some are willfully rebellious. Some people are just willfully rebellious. Other people, they're just habitually unsteady. Others are very insecure and they buckle when the pressure is on. So when life comes at them, instead of trusting the Lord, their instability kicks in. James puts it this way. They're double-minded and they're unstable in all their ways. One Bible scholar put it this way. He said, they are consistently inconsistent. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> They're torn between sin and obedience. They just, they just can't think clearly. 
But a better way is after a while to ask God for wisdom, to doubt our doubts, to trust the Lord with our doubts, and to walk in his ways. Now, James, in my opinion, is not some idealist. I mean, he, he knows what life is about. I mean, for most people, life consists of, of working and paying the bills, cleaning the house, making the meals, sleeping, taking a shower. I mean, and all sorts of difficulties that go along. You know, you, you fix one thing in your house and then something else breaks. It's just, there's just always these kinds of difficulties. Yet he knows where to find wisdom and peace, and it's found in the heart and mind of God who provides peace in the storms of life. That is because he knows. And remember, he was Jesus' little brother. And he knew that his older half-brother was the Son of God. And he knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God is a giving God. That God is a generous God. That he gives to all who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ without finding fault. So tonight, if you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ... You can, you can come to him, and you don't have to worry about him saying, oh, I'm hesitating. Oh, I found some fault with you. No, he's going to give you eternal life. He's going to forgive you of your sins. He's going to give you his son. You said, what's Jesus got to do with wisdom? 1 Corinthians 1.24 said, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. That's who Jesus is, given to us for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life and to be able to receive God's wisdom. Step number one, put our trust in him. If that's you tonight, you can do that for the first time. In step number two through infinity, keep putting your trust in him in all the encounters you have in life. In Mark chapter 9, there was a boy who was demon-possessed, and his father came and spoke. Uh, well, he was there. His disciples didn't know what to do, and his father spoke with Jesus. In Mark 9, 23 and 24, Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. That's a, that's a, that's a lot of faith, isn't it? I mean, here's your, here's your boy. It's, your boy is demon-possessed. I mean, we read this stuff in the Bible, and we're like, Oh, the kid was demon-possessed. No big deal. Five minutes later, we stub our toe and we think the world is ending, right? It's like, like it was easier for the demon-possessed father, the kid who's, who had the demon-possessed kid, than it is for me who, who cut my finger or something like that. Now, this is intense. And Jesus says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him to believe. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, here's the trick question. Is that being double-minded? I believe with all of my heart the answer is no. He believed, 
but he also needed help with the part of him that was filled with unbelief. In other words, he was saying to the Lord, I need help not just in believing. I need help in being full of faith. I, I believe you, God. I, I believe you. I trust you. But this situation is so overwhelming. It's so incredibly hard. I, I, I'm just at a complete loss. I brought them to your disciples, and they didn't have a clue what to do with them. It seems like nobody can help. I, I, need, I need faith that's coming out my ears for this. And I'm asking you to help me with this. So Jesus filled this man's heart with faith. And he will do the same thing for you. And he will do the same thing for me. And then Jesus healed the boy. That's how God answers our request for faith and wisdom. That's how he helps us persevere in trials. And little do we know, that's also how he carries us by his grace. Well, let's pray.